Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hi, Claire. How are you? Well, it's supposed to be pouring with rain today, but actually it's not. So that's always a bonus. Yeah, and it's spring is coming. I feel like it's in the air. The air's a little warmer, not less frost. Seas are warmer, buds are coming out. And I always think once you're past Easter, you're definitely into spring. Yeah, well, apart from anything else, you're stuffed to the gills with chocolate, wanting something to change, something to shift. you got to get outside to shift all those sweets you eat, or I used to eat anyway. It's exciting this month at Open Book, we're looking at the theme of grow and transform. Um, and we're going to be looking at a story by Ruth Gilchrist and um, a poem by Rachel Plummer. But before we get to that, just wanted to say a little bit about we're combining that with the theme of celebrations to celebrate the Scottish Book Trust's 10th anniversary, is that right, of Book Week Scotland. This month, all of our creative writing groups will be looking at the idea of grow and transform and celebrating. We've decided to have it be celebrating the self as a way of working into their theme for the year. And hopefully, like other years, we'll get something into their book of of published writing in the autumn. And that's open to anyone. So if you're listening and you're a writer, head over to the Scottish Book Trust website and you can find the information about how to send in your own stories on the celebration theme. And they'll consider them as part of their picking and choosing for their Book Week Scotland publication, which comes out in November. We've always been really lucky. Some of our writers have ended up with individual pieces, but we often have a group poem in as well, one of our groups writing together. And this year, as I said, we're going to look at the idea of celebrating the self and the way that we've all, well, maybe resilience is a way of thinking about that or the way that we've all managed to grow and transform in this very strange year indeed. And one of the ways that we've grown and transformed, even in this strange time, is to add a new Gaelic program. We're not just going to be doing the intermediate sessions that we've been running online, but we're adding a beginner session for those out there who are learning Gaelic, who are really learning at the start of that journey, as well as a creative writing group and sessions in Galloway, reading sessions in Galloway and on Uist. But we're also going to be adding an Arabic group or two, both closed sessions for community of women we're hoping in Galloway but also a session that's open to the public and maybe even a creative writing session and those sessions will be entirely in Arabic not with a sense of learning Arabic but trying to support Arabic speakers and new Scots in our communities. Lots of scope for us to grow and transform I think there. Yeah and what and the reason we thought about Arabic is some of the Syrian families that we support were saying that they just are worried about losing their language coming here and as someone who lost her first language Farsi when I was a girl I really recognized the need to and the the richness that a second language gives people. I'm looking forward to see how that goes. Yeah, me too. Shall I start the story? Yeah, thanks. So this one is, um, as Margie said, by Ruth Gilchrist, who's one of our lead readers. Ruth runs a shared reading group down in Dunbar Library, and her story is called The Change. Initially, When he had been little, of course she worried about living so close to the sea. So they had done the swimming lesson thing, and later he'd had sailing lessons. They had met a good group that way, the sort, she thought, had wider horizons, whom now, she hoped, might not be so quick to judge a young person. So far, the teenage years had been manageable. She had read all the Maggie Dent articles, taught herself to keep communication light, never show shock. 
his moods tended to transmute into soggy heaps rather than shouting matches. At first, Layla had felt fairly calm about the latest changes. At least he and his mates weren't causing trouble like some local youths, tombstoning at the harbour. Nor was he hiding in his room, stuck like a limpet to his mobile device. Most of the time was spent down at the beach or in the water. The fresh air, sea, sand, would undoubtedly help him think his way through whatever was troubling him. Surely this was a healthier way to channel the teenage angst. When he did rebel, it was in a way that Layla had not expected, and it didn't seem to fit with the latest teen trends. He refused to go to the barbers. Layla gritted her teeth and kept them clenched till his hair grew below his shoulders. Now that it had reached the curve of his spine, she felt happy that long hair suited him. She told herself not to worry about his choices, that swimming against the tide would only make him more resilient. However, she did not like the thought that he might have cut himself off from his peer group. His teacher had alluded to as much at the parents' evening before the start of the summer holidays. The teacher had said he had stopped hanging around with the usual boisterous gang, preferring instead to float between the groups of girls. Should we stop there? Yeah. So much in that initial part of the story that I recognise. That idea of doing swimming lessons just because you live close to the sea. Yeah. It's one of those things, you know, I don't know about you and your family, but it makes me think, you know, I was so determined with my first couple that they had really serious swimming lessons and they went right the way through. And then the third one had most of her swimming lessons. And it's fair to say the littlest one, who's not very little anymore, got cut off because, you know, inevitably I had too many other lifts and things to do. It was really hard to get it all in. It's something young mums worry about, isn't it? It's like a skill that you have to give your child. <laughs> a bit like riding a bike. I recognise that idea as well of, of trying to head off danger at the pass. Yeah. So, you know, constantly thinking ahead and trying to anticipate where the danger might lie and trying to sort of navigate around that. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because then in the second paragraph of the story, She's still doing that, isn't she? Mm. She's still trying to navigate around the dangers, but she's a lot less capable of doing it because it it doesn't seem to present itself in the ways that she expects. It reminds me a lot as well of that sort of imagery of that we sometimes get presented with the phrase tiger mother or helicopter parent is another one I've heard where you're there just trying to smooth the way for your child the whole time. And it does make me wonder how helpful that actually is and you know obviously you can't do that for them forever or for as an adult or in the jobs world or whatever and you know how we how we find that balance between being that supportive parent that's giving them the opportunity to do swimming and sailing and all the other things but at the same time letting them find their own way yeah and I wonder I mean I think it's a real generational thing I mean my parents you know were were around and supportive but certainly not nearly as involved in my teenage life as we are, you know, knowing the ins and outs of everything that goes on. I mean, and certainly this is in a strange year, so everybody's been stuck in a house together, so it's hard not to know the ins and outs of your children's lives. But I felt so sorry for my oldest, you know, when I was 17 and left school, 
that summer, I was barely home. You know, I literally would check in so they knew I was still alive, but that was about it, you know. But also reflecting on, you know, that we were just freer, I think, kind of left to make up our minds about what was not safe, but, you know, hopefully by then your parents had instilled that idea of what you could and couldn't do or shouldn't, shouldn't do. Whereas now, you know, there's a real feeling that we've got to be involved in. You know, it's inconceivable to have a 17 or 18 year old off and not know where they are in the summer for, for days, <laughs> not just, you know, the odd hour, but like, you know, we have, we almost, we don't have tracking devices, but we know where they all are. It is definitely micromanaging in a way that, well, I certainly never was. And when you mentioned the Tiger Mother, I remember you and I standing in a bookstore around the corner when it came out. I remember laughing reading the back, I mean, literally killing ourselves laughing reading the back cover, you know, that your children were only allowed to do sports that were in the Olympics. But then it just became a thing that people say, isn't it, that you're a Tiger Mother if you're helping your kids do whatever it is. She doesn't strike me as a Tiger Mother, she strikes me as a worrier. Because if she was a Tiger Mother, there's no way she'd let her kids' hair grow, right? Yeah, agreed. And, you know, there's no way she would let him go off to the seaside. She'd be making sure he was practicing his piano or doing whatever. So there is like, I think there is something there about wanting to give the child space to be whoever they are, but worrying more about how that might fit in with the rest of the world she knows. That's my sense about her. Yeah. And I'm not sure she's generally a worrier or whether it's just that she worries about him. Yeah, because she does, you know, saying like the fresh air is going to help him think through whatever is going on with him. I don't get the sense that they're that close if she doesn't know what it is, you know, because I imagine if my children were growing their hair in a way that wasn't sort of well, arguably here socially acceptable or in a way that she felt was or I felt was different. I'm sure they would articulate that to me. I don't get the sense that they've had that conversation. She seems to be clenching her teeth and trying not to look shocked. Yeah, and she does focus and say that swimming against the tide would only make him more resilient, which kind of makes me think that something happened that he needs to be resilient. I get the feeling that she knows he's different. You know, and I think there is a sort of, there is a tendency, even in my own life, you know, to find qualities in my children that are slightly different and think, well, good, you know, actually, you'll need that strength of character, you know, to kind of be able to be yourselves in the world that wants you to be like everybody else. So when I see that, I don't think, oh, no, I think, well, okay, but actually, you're also going to need, you're going to need a little chutzpah to get you through. Yeah, and for me, there seems to be a tension for her. She wants him to fit in, in the sense that it would be an easier ride for him to do that, but at the same time, accepts that he's not going to do that. So, you know, he is going to be different and... But the language is interesting because it says not she didn't worry about his choices, but she told herself not to worry about the choices. Mm -hmm. So she's obviously worrying. <laughs> well, I keep reading. Yeah, why don't you? Now, in the holidays, he did not invite any of his friends around and had almost stopped bothering with his mobile. His laptop history showed reels of research into the effects of chemical pollutants on the oceans and the effect of climate change on marine animals. Unlike most of the local lads, he was more interested in the conservation side of marine life than looking into a future in the fishing industry. He'd obviously dredged deeper into some of the statistics on extinction and had bookmarked several pages on the consequence of pollution on reproduction. It was uncomfortable reading and it occurred to Layla that her son might be depressed. Other than give him time to think, she didn't know what else she could do. Even in the wilder weather, she couldn't stop him from going into the sea, and now she wondered if she wasn't a little to blame. She could have chosen not to live by the sea. What was she thinking encouraging a love of water sports? She did, however, believe that her efforts meant her son's knowledge of the currents was far superior to that of most fishermen, and that comforted her a little. 
All she could do was steady herself for the storm she knew would come. Two weeks before the end of the summer holidays, it was Layla who broke the calm. He wasn't around much, and she felt like he was drifting ever further beyond her reach. She got cross with him, said, It was one thing leaving sand in the shower, but fish scales were quite another. In future, could he please wash his catch in the outside tap? Of course, it didn't really cover what she wanted to say, or what she really wanted to ask. He knew it, looked up at her with dark, watery eyes, and calmly told her he thought he needed to get away. When she asked him, knowing full well the state of his bank account, if he had enough money for the fare, he looked at her unblinkingly and slowly and said, Yeah, Mom, don't worry, I'll not be far away. With that, he had swung the back door open, turning as he did. Oh, and Mom, when I get back, we need to talk about what my father was. The door had rattled on its hinges, her emotions catching like a barb in her throat. She'd watched him step over the pebbles, across the beach, stripping clothes as he went. By the time he reached the edge of the water, he was down on the ground slithering into the surf. As his powerful shoulders dive beneath the surface, she saw the light wink of his tail. All she could manage to send after him was a strangled plea, mind the nets. So it feels like she probably did have something to worry about then. It wasn't worrying for worrying's sake. No. And yet, I mean, I just wonder if it's... So for me, it brings to mind the Selkie story, which we'll get into in the poem. But you tell us the story because you'll know it better than me. It's it's a Scottish story, isn't it? It's certainly not an American one. I think it's actually an island. I think I, I was associated with the Shetland, but that's maybe not correct. The Selkies came from the sea in the form of a seal and shed their skin and took on a human form, but they had to hide their seal skins in order to be able to return to the sea. Now, in, in the stories that I've read, the Selkie was usually female okay, and often fell in love with, married, had, had family with males on the island, but always at some point returned to the sea. It's it's one of, I think, many shapeshifter mythology stories in Scots mythology. And it feels like it fits perfectly with that idea of shapeshifting at this age, you know, that, you know, in this story, obviously he gets into the sea and you can see his tail, so he has shifted. But the reality is, you know, shapeshifting of a form is happening at that age anyway, you know, and I can say that with some certainty having well, at the moment of 14, a 16 and an 18 year old, you know, that it is that time in your life when you shape shift into something else that you get, it's the first time you get to decide, you know, who you're going to be um, away from the construct that was family or the place that you consider home. I think the difference here though is that he doesn't get to choose, does he? He is this seal he is this thing whether he wants to be or not well it's funny because i do think he's chosen and i think he's hung around by the sea i mean it sounds like he could have just ignored that call and done something else but choosing to grow his hair choosing to do all the research it does feel like he's engaged with it in a way that he he could have walked away from i feel like i don't, I don't feel like it's a destiny thing i feel like it's it's a choice for him I prefer that interpretation. I, let, I prefer it to be a choice for him rather than something he's been burdened with. I think though that question, when I get back, we need to talk about what my father was, is quite telling. Mm. In the sense that, you know, he obviously has a sense that he doesn't know the full story. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he's come from. I mean, I think what, what we didn't get until that point was the fact that she's a single parent. 
And I think there must be a real difficulty in being a child's only point of reference. You know, the families that I know where mums have, particularly in my case, mums have raised children who don't know who their fathers are. You know, it's really difficult because you are, they are, they are by definition, they have two parents and we are genetically a mix of two people. And the difficulty there is when you can only see one and you're forever wondering whether part of your character comes from or your looks. I mean, even something as simple as what you look like, what comes from the bit that you can't see, you know, as whereas in our, my case, I can see both parents and I can work out that my ears or temper or whatever it is doesn't actually come from either of them. They just, it just gets to be mine. So I think it must, it adds a sort of dimension of lack of knowing, an unsettled dimension really. And that you get that quite strongly, I think, from that final section. But at the same time, he is saying, yes, mum, don't worry, I'll not be far away. So there doesn't seem any anger or frustration or angst about it. He seems quite accepting of, of what he is. And he says, when I get back, you know, if my teen was dropping off somewhere else, if they left with a, when I get back, we'll need to talk about, I mean, honestly, you could say anything after that. I would just be so relieved that their intention was to come back. You know, because most teens, when they drop off, say, I never want to see you again. So in fury. Never uh, speak to me again. (laughs) (laughs) That seems a very calm, measured way of dealing with that. And it does feel almost like, you know, you could see a situation where a parent was a different race or comes from a different place and the child feeling like they just need to go and explore where that is. You know, it could be anything, really. You know, in the States, if you've got a child who's from... South America, you know, you could see a child saying, well, I just need to go figure out where I'm from and I'll be back in a way that isn't as supernatural as this. But it, it feels like it chimes with lots of the stories you might hear, especially children who are, and it's something we've talked a lot about in other podcasts, but, you know, the mix of two things, that unsettling feeling that you're never quite one or never quite the other. You know, he's obviously just Im- sort of immersing himself in the other to see what it feels like. And he feels a very mature character, you know, the way he's he's responded. But also it's him who raises the subject. She obviously knows it's there. She obviously knows it's something that's coming. But she chooses to talk about leaving the sand in the, the shower. And she says it doesn't cover what she wanted to say, but it's him that takes on the mature approach and almost feels right, okay, we need to address this, we need to talk about this. Yeah, and she's not surprised to see him stripping off as he gets in the water, you know, dropping clothes as he goes. It's not like there's a shocking moment there. It's funny because it feels like at the end of the story, she's finally, like when it says her emotions are catching like a barb in her throat. I feel like that's probably true for her all the way along. Like she's definitely holding something in her, you know, and maybe it's the secrecy of who his father is. But she's not a person who seems to be really in touch with what's going on. You know, she's holding back, hoping it doesn't come to pass rather than facing up to it. And even at the end, her emotions are catching in her throat rather than, you know, saying presumably, you know, what she wants to say. I don't know. And she's still, even in that very last moment when she has an opportunity to say something, it's a strangled plea. Yeah, and it's mind mm-hmm. the nets, not I really yeah. love you or, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter. Come back me. soon or, yeah. But I wonder if that's, you know, that's also reflective of what parenthood's like. You know, we, we're so entrenched in our roles as parents that, that the transformation or the shape-shifting is not just for the kids. You know, it's also for us as parents to turn into something else, which is some role between parent and friend or you know at some point your children stop needing you to be parents so much or certainly mind the nets you know (laughs) it's not something he's going to need to be told so yeah she's obviously challenged with that transformation herself you know and then we've talked about before there's some point at which and edging closer to our age 
where you feel like you're parenting your parents, you know, as they get older and you're worrying about their health and taking care of them in their older age, it definitely flips again. And we, as children, we become the parents. But, you know, there is, it's definitely a, a shape shifting that happens for both, for everybody in a way. And it feels like she didn't see it coming somehow. It's another one of those stories where in a very few short words, we feel like we gathered so much information. And there's so much still, I mean, it's the kind of stories we love, isn't it? Yeah, so much is not said here um, that we could decide all kinds of things about him. And any version of them could be correct. It just happens that we know Ruth and could ask her what she meant. But um, but it's great when we when we don't have the answers to those questions, so we get to decide for ourselves. Shall we read the poem? Yeah. So this is a poem that Ruth um, chose to go along with her story. And it's by Rachel Plummer. And our thanks go out to Rachel for giving us her permission to read it and talk about it in today's podcast. It's called Selkie. The secret me is a boy. He takes girlness off like a sealskin something that never sat right on his shoulders. The secret me is broad-shouldered, the sea can't contain him, the land can't anchor his waves to its sand. The secret me swims with the big fish, brash, he swaggers like a mermaid, bears teeth like daggers, barks at the moon when it's thin. He's whiskered, that boy, Thick-skinned, quick-finned, always turning tail. He wears his own skin like a sail, lets it carry him to where salt swallows mouthfuls of air. Let them find me there, by the shore. The girl seal, with a secret boy inside. Rough-voiced, black-eyed, washed bare as the beach by the tide. This is just such a gorgeous poem. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's from her book, Wayne, which is LGBT reimaginings of Scottish folklore. And what, what I always think of when I read this poem, which is possibly difficult, is that I know when we can get into what Rachel might have meant about this, but I, what I really love about it is that the acknowledgement that gender isn't a fixed thing. And that, you know, I remember feeling, and I know it's troublesome when we talk about transgender, but Lots of us feel, or I certainly felt like a tomboy at times. I never felt like a boy. But you know, the idea that girls are girls and boys are boys is just wrong, you know. And so it feels like giving permission to be all kinds of things in your life, as well as giving permission for the bigger question of, you know, whether someone's been misgendered or is trans. But just apart from that, it feels like it gives the rest of us permission not to be stuck in a box, which I love, you know. And I feel very lucky in that sense, in that as the eldest of three girls with a father who absolutely adored sport I was the nominated person that would go fishing with him and go to football matches and go to rugby and play tennis I mean my sisters did as well but I think I was just big enough to do it soonest and so I, I never had that sense of certain things are for girls and certain things are for boys from home although I think as soon as you get into a sort of school environment that those sort of ideas start to become more familiar but they, they genuinely were not something that I, f I I didn't think about girlness or girlyish things in the same way as um, I know some of my my peers did at the, the same time and so I, I recognize that 
idea of having more than one side, more than one set of interests, more than one part to your personality. It's funny you say that because my mum is the oldest of five and the fifth is a boy. But so she was also because her dad loved hunting and you know, it was very much a man's man. She was the nominated boy. She always says I was the nominated boy because her brother only came around over 10 years after her. And so she is, she can handle a gun. You know, she's, she is less sort of, she's very feminine, but she's, she's tough. You know, she'll take up the hood of the car and look under it. She's much more, she's not frightened of what things might seem boyish. But um, interestingly for my, me, I'm not sure that's true because I think Persians are very gendered in the way that they, some things are absolutely for girls and other things are absolutely for boys. You know, and it's no secret that I'm not the girliest of girls at all, but also I didn't have the pigeonhole of sport. I'm terrible at sport. And so it's a strange one to have grown up, you know, wanting to climb trees and be outdoors and not wear, I remember having endless arguments about refusing to wear things that were girly, florals and dresses and things. And yet I wasn't a really sporty girl either. So I didn't fit in any box as it were. And what I, you know, the thing I love about this poem is that, you know, you can, you can be brash and you can swagger and you can bark, you know, those were all things that were not okay for little, the, the nice girls. Um, certainly the Persians try and keep girls very girly. So it feels like it's giving permission to be somewhere on a spectrum and that whatever that spectrum is for you is okay. Rather. And is also not fixed. I can choose to paint my nails pink and wear a tutu today, but tomorrow I might want to bark at the moon. Yeah, which I think as an, you know, now as an adult, I'm somewhere like that. You know, I, I love to get, I mean, God, wouldn't it be great to have an excuse to wear a dress? I haven't worn one in over a year, but, um, you know, just to get dressed and go do anything. And yet I do really, you know, still like climbing trees and climbing hills and, you know, tromping around in the woods. So it's, you know, I feel as an adult, I feel much more freer to do that. And I feel maybe that our children feel that it's okay to be, it doesn't have to be fixed, as you say, but I definitely felt it had to be. And then I just didn't, you know, I was, I grew up in the Laura Ashley age where everybody wanted these big floral frumpy dresses and I could think of nothing worse. Um, you know, I remember my mum refusing to buy me any clothes one year that didn't have a pattern on it. So I just didn't, I refused to buy any clothes because I just didn't, you know, I just wasn't, I knew that wasn't the girl that I was. I just didn't know where I fit in. But the other thing that I really love about this poem and the thing that, you know, Rachel has said publicly and, you know, has taken a lot of grief for publicly is that she's also acknowledging that some children are trans children and that they are allowed to be. I think what she's doing is saying you're allowed to be you, whatever that is, and allowing children or humans really to have a voice in who they are without projecting it onto somebody. And that's really what we were saying about what we were like as girls as well, just being allowed to be whoever it was we were. It's a poem that can be read lots of different ways, which I think is where its power lies. And I was just going to say, use that word power and say it's a real poem full of permission and power and permission to self-determine and to to make your own choices and I think that's I think that's why I find it so beautiful such a beautiful I mean apart from the the word choice and the you know it's a joy to read aloud you know there's there's sort of almost unexpected rhymes in there that you don't actually pick up on when you're reading it on the page to yourself but when you read it aloud it becomes almost like an anthem you know? yeah I think so I think you could carry it 
as something. And, and the other thing that's really nice about it, it is, it's not saying, I mean, obviously by writing the poem, the secret becomes public, but it, it, it also gives the reader permission to have secrets about themselves that they don't have to share with the world. You know, not everything about you has to be a public thing. There are things you can keep to yourself, you know, and I think um, particularly for children, that's a really important message that who you, every part of who you feel you are, doesn't have to be approved by the rest of the world, including your parents or anybody else. And I remember, you know, I certainly wasn't, didn't think that when I was little, you know, and even now as adults, you know, I keep always reminding myself that everything I do doesn't have to be for the public consumption or even not that I'm doing anything crazy, but public approval, really, it's really just about getting to be yourself and giving, as you say, power, permission, determination back to a person to do that for themselves rather than needing someone else. Because she's not saying that the secret her is going to change or that needs to change. It's just acknowledging that there is a secret you inside you. And in this case, it's about gender, but I feel like it could be almost about anything. And I think it shades into as well the, the conversation we were having earlier about the story in relation to how much more involved adults are in children's lives now than maybe they were a few generations ago. Like, I think it would have been much easier to have had a secret you at a time when you're left to disappear for three days to the beach and climb trees without anyone, you know. But I think now our children are so, as we said earlier, micromanaged and under such scrutiny and spotlight that having that sort of private part of you that you carry yourself and that you don't have to share, I think is harder for, for children. Yeah. I don't think they have the space to create it. And I remember someone saying to me, children only learn when they're bored. Mm, yeah, um, I've heard that. Really. And what, what she was saying is not learn maths or whatever, but learn about themselves when there's a kind of vacuum so that they then can think, okay, what am I going to do with this time? Or And if you don't give children enough time to be bored, they, they grow up without knowing much about themselves because everything else is managed for them. And that's a real, that causes a real crisis at some point. And yeah, I think that that's the worry for me is, you know, that especially in a time of lockdown, we're so on it with where our children are and what they're doing. I feel like they're learning on the internet because that's the one thing they can do without necessarily being micromanaged. You know, they can scroll TikTok or whatever it is and follow the cooking trends or whatever it is that they want to be watching. That's a, I guess that's their version of playing kick the can in the middle of the evening or whatever. But yeah, I don't feel like they've given much scope to explore or vacuums or spaces in which to explore who the, who might be inside because we're also forever saying what is it you like would you like to do dancing would you like to do cooking would you like to you know rather than just stumbling upon things themselves so it's an interesting social experiment we're convinced of its rightness but it'll be interesting to see what how resilient our children are when they grow up and you've talked about that idea as well in connection with creativity and writing and how really you don't know what you're going to write or what you want to write until you're in a place where you're bored so if you're washing the dishes or folding the sheets or then that's when you, you've got to create that space yeah where the body's for busy. the learning and the yeah and the creativity to manifest itself and it feels like it's quite that's a sort of similar to thing to what you're talking about in terms of learning about yourself yeah, and I'm sure I've said it before, but the kind of joke amongst some writers that I know is that the best job for a writer is a dishwasher at a restaurant because your hands and your sort of sub your conscious is busy because you're scrubbing pots. But actually, you know, you can do that without thinking too hard about it. So is there something in, in the mind that's working away at your novel or your narrative or whatever it is that you're working at? And I think that's, yeah, that's definitely true for writers generally is if you can keep the body busy, the, it creates a space to you know, create something. And quite often 
you know, writers will say they didn't see it themselves when they wrote it, that there's something embedded there that they didn't see themselves. Um, so yeah, I feel like, yeah, something, I'll, it'll, it's, it's interesting these chats between us because quite often it makes me go away and think again about how I'm managing my family and our, because we don't often get a chance to reflect back on how we're doing things. We're so busy doing them that we often don't step back and think, huh, I wonder if I've, you know, I've created a space for my children to have time to themselves today or even this week. So it's, it's useful for you and I to have these chats too, to kind of reflect on it and maybe see, see if we're giving our children and ourselves a chance for having a secret life of any kind, really. Certainly not during lockdown. I was going to say there's <laughs> no secrets in my house in lockdown at the moment. No. Um, yeah. Although we are now into April and things are due to get better at the end of the month. So I do feel more optimistic that there is a, a, a hope of an end to the restrictions and, and an easing. And apart from anything else, we can be outside more as the weather And the weather's eases. better, yeah. Yeah. But we'd love to hear what all of you out there listening think about Rachel's poem or Ruth's story and that idea of shape-shifting and transforming both as a child as and an adult, you know, in our different roles, how you might have been required to do that this year or otherwise. I think we've all had to do a bit of shape-shifting in the last year. Or if you found any ways of celebrating yourself, we'd love to hear about those as well. Yeah, it does feel like, you know, we should celebrate the ways we've managed, the resilience we've had and how we've transformed to make this year survivable, really, and, and, and positive in, a, in very, very strict confines. I feel we've all got those little stories, whether however micro they might be, of shifting and growing in different ways. So thank you to Rachel and to Ruth for those beautiful pieces of work. I think that's all for us today. Just left to say thank you very much for being with us again and letting us be in your ears and we really look forward to being with you again soon. <laughs>